Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Skewed and Reviewed Skewedcast. I'm Gareth, creator of Skewed and Reviewed. You can see us online at sknr.net. You can also catch me each week on BGA Shea's Geek Nation on KISWFM. And, of course, we have our quarterly magazine, Skewed and Reviewed the Magazine. We're getting ready to uh, start working on the September issue soon. And, of course, you can catch us at Pinal, P-I-N-A-L, central.com. Keyword Skewed, which is the network of newspapers that uh, carry us. And you can see our game reviews and stuff there. And we cover movies, games, television, conventions, pop culture, hardware, tech, and so much more. And I'm joined, as always, with Justin and Michael. And we are going to take a run through uh, the world of entertainment. We have some video game news for you. We're going to talk about some stuff uh, happening for the PS5 and the Xbox Series X. And then we have a really interesting discussion on some major changes uh, that are happening to the world of cinemas that uh, once they do open up for the general public again, you're going to see a very different landscape um, compared to the way things were. And we're not talking about health and safety measures. We're talking about the business side and operations. We're going to end the show with a look at the Orville. We had some uh, people in a very great Orville group on Reddit. Uh, mention some of the things that they would love to see in Season 3. And so Michael and I will discuss that uh, and uh, go from there. So kicking off right now, Sony had their state of play this uh, last Thursday where they showed off some of the games that were coming. Got to have a look at Crash Bandicoot 4. It's about time. Looks fantastic. Very challenging. Hood, Outlaws, and Legends had their reveal trailer. Also going to be available for other platforms. Uh, but perhaps the biggest surprise was Vader Immortal. We knew it was coming for the PlayStation VR, but it's coming out at the end of August. And so anybody who knows this, it has been a very successful game on the PC VR formats where you play as Darth Vader, lightsaber combat, force skills, and it is considered to be probably right there with Half-Life Alex to be the standout example of VR technology in gaming. So why don't we start with Justin? What do you take about all this? Yeah, so I'm um, definitely pretty excited. Um, I think VR has obviously needed some killer apps, um, and I, like you said, Half-Life Alex I think was the first one uh, that was really like the must-have. That you know, the one that's going to really, really put like the one piece of software that's really going to push VR headsets to being sold. I think this is uh, definitely a contender for another killer app. Uh, I think this could definitely push some VR headsets being sold. Uh, it looks very impressive. It looks very, uh, you know, a lot of effort. You know, the one thing about uh, VR games that, you know, just like with motion controls, uh, trying to escape like that um, that uh, stereotype of just being uh, based around a gimmick. Um, obviously, uh, you know, that's something that has been worked on over time. It's a very new space still, uh, but this game looks like it has a lot of production value and effort. And if you're into lightsaber battles, obviously, I think this is uh, this is what everybody's been wanting: a VR, you know, lightsaber-based um, a force and lightsaber-based uh, combat system that's done completely in VR. I think that's also very that's just very impressively done. And the fact it's coming out so soon. Uh, at the end of the month, I think that's also was a big surprise for everybody, like you said. I just wanted to mention just one other thing about the state of play. 
they did show a lot of games, uh, actually, but, you know, I, I, a lot of people were expecting it to be all PS5-based, so it wasn't really uh, what it was. Uh, they had the PS5 state of play a little bit earlier. I think this was a little bit of a mix. There were some games in here that might be releasing on both, but sort of more uh, focused on the current gen, uh, kind of like the last several games coming out for the PS4 era. Uh, one of the ones, probably my highlight, uh, actually for the, the show was the, uh, the second expansion pack for control. I just wanted to give that a bit of a shout out because, uh, I'm a huge fan of remedies games. Um, in particular, Alan Wake, uh, I absolutely love Alan Wake and, uh, uh I really liked control as well. It's probably my favorite game from last year. Uh, and this is a crossover event, um, between Alan Wake and control, uh, which I am absolutely stoked for. Uh, and apparently seems to be setting up something um, bigger uh, in, in both franchises, linking them together, kind of creating a shared universe between those two games. Uh, I can only hope um, that they are working on an Alan Wake 2. They did recently confirm that they are working on a game in that universe, so they didn't say if it was a sequel to Control, sequel to Alan Wake, or something else. But uh, I really do hope it's Alan Wake 2, and I hope this this particular expansion pack um, kind of sets that up. I'm I'm pretty excited for it, and that's uh, that's also at the end of the month. And Michael, your take, please. Well, yeah. So I'm gonna second the Alan, the Alan Wake comment because that's probably one of my favorite games of all time, if not. Well, it's hard to say it's my favorite of all time, but definitely up there. So I was excited to see the kind of crossover event as well. Because um, I've been waiting, I think a lot of people have been waiting for Alan Wake 2 um, for a while. Uh, Control was is a fantastic game, don't get me wrong, but I still would love to go back to the Alan Wake world. So I agree um, with Justin that that's something that's exciting from a, not necessarily strictly PlayStation perspective, but from a, from a gaming perspective overall. Um, Star Wars Vader Immortal, I'm interested to see how the controls work with PlayStation VR. Um, the move controllers, if, if that's your preferred control method, are, have always been a little flaky, in my opinion. Again, I play mostly VR on Oculus or on Vive, so I'm a little biased, I think, to the control scheme. And that's one thing that I was really hoping we would see um, come out of PlayStation 5 was a, a newer control scheme for PlayStation VR, either for PSVR in general, uh, version 1, or the next PSVR 2, um, one could hope. Um, so yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that game controls and plays. And I do agree that just like um, Half-Life Al Half Alex, VR, in order to really kind of pick up steam and, and really kind of move, you know, and get, move into the next generation and actually push the limits and boundaries, there needs to be more um, killer apps for that for that platform as a whole. We're starting to see more of that, um, particularly with things like No Man's Sky VR. Um, is fantastic. Um, Half-Life Alex, which we kind of discussed. Um, Star Wars Vader Immortal, we know that the Iron Man uh, PSVR experience is going to be coming out as well. So I, I like that they're continuing to, to drive innovation in that and, and continuing to push that product further. So I'm excited to see. Um, hopefully this will kind of lead it into a new generation of VR, and hopefully we'll learn more about what PlayStation has on the agenda for the next version of VR, um, you know, higher resolution headsets, better control schemes, those would all be good things to, to have come out in the future. Um, obviously, um, one of the things I, I did kind of feel about the PlayStation 5 um, state of play, Sony state of play, was there was a, a lot of uh, 
non necessarily um, uh, Sony specific titles, which is good. Uh, we did get to see some things like uh, Hood Outlaws and Legends, which looks good. Obviously, Crash Bandicoot looks good. So yeah, it was kind of a mix of things. I again, I, I wouldn't say there were a lot of uh, new exciting you know, announcements for PlayStation 5 in particular, but it does look like there's you know some uh, relatively good uh, updates and games coming out in the near future. So excited to see what they what they can do with that. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned Iron Man VR because that has been a very successful launch on the PSVR. And it shows that the technology is continuing to expand. I'm very curious to see what happens when the PS5 comes out, in that Sony has already said that the current VR will be compatible with that. We've already pretty much understood that there's a second generation coming somewhere down the line. There are rumors that uh, it will be the thing that follows one year after launch. So it's nice to see that there seems to be more ambitious VR projects in the work. And over the weekend, we had QuakeCon taking place, and uh, one of the bits of news that came out ahead of QuakeCon was that Doom Eternal and the Elder Scrolls Online would have PS5 and Xbox Series X capability. This would be done through an upgrade, and like with Destiny 2 and some of the other games, people who own it will be able to port it over, take advantage of the enhancements, and go from there. Now, interestingly enough, during the uh, QuakeCon event, they did not go heavily, as we expected, we talked about, into um, new products, but we did see some new uh, footage on Deathloop, which we've, uh, or we got a little more details, I should say, which we learned about at the uh, PS5 state of play uh, when they first revealed the look of the console. And uh, we also got a look at the upcoming expansion for Doom Eternal. So, Michael, you start us off. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess I'm a little disappointed in QuakeCon because I was really hoping there would be some major announcement, things that we hadn't been hinted about already. I don't think, um, you know, we got to see some Fallout 76, you know, content that's coming. Obviously, there had been rumors about a Doom Eternal um, DLC and expansion uh, and a big update coming, and I don't think that was really a big surprise. I think everybody kind of expected that we would see that. Um, they did, you know, do a little bit more of discussion with Elder Scrolls Online, kind of talked about more that's coming out for Greymore, which is their year-long event uh, with their latest expansion. So I wouldn't say that it was... Um, it, was, it wasn't a bad show by any means, but I think a lot of us were hoping we'd see something new, because we know that Bethesda's got quite a bit of stuff in the works, um, and there, but there really wasn't a lot of uh, showing us a lot of new new stuff that's that's coming, or a lot of new content. A lot of the same you know stuff that we're, we're seeing, expansions being uh, delivered, we're seeing updates being delivered again, all these things are, are, are great things. Uh, but I, I think it's probably another reason why, um, you know, we didn't see a lot from an E3 perspective from Bethesda as well. Is it, there seems to be a lot of focus on expanding their current IPs, driving, um, you know, improvements and releases and that sort of thing for their current IPs. But all in all, it was kind of a, you know, short, you know, 20-minute-ish um, intro of what was coming. I think there were a lot of hopes that we would get some big announcement out of it, and that really didn't seem to materialize. So. Again, we're all trying to live in this new world, and I know QuakeCon traditionally hasn't necessarily been the place where big announcements were made anyways, 
Um, but at the same time, I think I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more to the show. You know, I think it would have been nice to have something to, to look forward to, something to, to really dig our, our teeth into. And it looks like it, you know, a lot of the, you know, carry on and continue with the same stuff that they're working on. So, again, not not horribly disappointed, but I would have been liked to have seen something new come out of there. And Justin, your take, please. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and that's mainly because... Um, Obviously, we didn't have E3 this year, and uh, it's sort of been a staple. Uh, Bethesda's um, showcase at E3 has been growing uh, every year, pretty much, to the point where uh, they're one of the biggest shows at E3 every year the last several years. Um, you know, this is, you know, they're going up against like giants like, uh, you know, Electronic Arts, uh, Sony, Microsoft. So. Uh, the fact that it, E3 obviously didn't happen this year because of everything that's been going on, um, you know, I would have expected that with the extra time that uh, Bethesda would have uh, had more more to announce, especially on the things that you know uh, we knew we, that we know are are still in the pipeline. Like uh, um, there's that project, uh, the name sorry uh, escapes me, the project from Starfield. The, well, not just that. I didn't really expect much from Starfield, to be honest, just because when they announced it, they did say that it was several years out. So sure. my guess was that Starfield, probably we won't see it in a playable state for a while. Um, but I there was that project from the Arcane Studio uh, developer. Oh, Deathloop. Yeah. Yes, Deathloop. Um, we did uh, see a bit of that. Yeah, I, I, just, I think I was expecting a little bit more and may, maybe more from... I know there was a small... Uh, trailer for um, Ghostwire Tokyo um, from the, uh, the the Tango Softworks Softworks devs at Bethesda. Um, maybe even like other projects that might be in the pipeline that we haven't heard about. Um, I was just sort of expecting more, just larger announcements. Um, I mean, the the expansion to Doom Eternal. I think that's that's a good announcement. I, I liked that. Um, obviously, like Michael said, I think we sort of expected it just because we you know the game did so well and this game is so great that you know it would be a no-brainer to continue uh the single player and that was one of the things from doom 2016 that everybody asked for was that they wanted like single player dlc so i think this was um this was a no-brainer uh definitely a welcome announcement though Uh, unfortunately we didn't get to really see anything of it and I, i think they're um they were saying that uh they will be showing it uh at gamescom which is at the end of the month. So it's not too long from now to see more Doom Eternal. Uh, also a welcome um, announcement, like you said, Gareth, that uh, they're bringing it to PS5 and Xbox Series X. Uh, I think that also makes sense just because it's such a good-looking game. I think they could uh, kind of beef up some of the visuals, uh, You know, ensure that it runs at very high frame rates uh, and very high resolutions on, on the uh, next-generation hardware. I think that would be um, definitely welcome. Uh, but but again, I, I just want to loop back and just uh, reiterate. You know, I think uh, you know the, the silver lining. I try to look at this is that you know Bethesda didn't really announce a lot this year, but hopefully that means that they're just putting a lot of effort into the projects they're, that they're currently working on, and you know hopefully that just ends up making the the next um, showcase from them. You know, maybe sometime in 2021, uh, more impactful. Um, you know, it's been a very weird year for everybody. So uh, it, it is understandable, but maybe just a little bit disappointing. 
Yeah, it's it's odd because I was thinking about all of the showcases and events, and there have been a lot of people that have been complaining online about that there's no drama and there haven't been the big reveals and so on and so forth. And I thought, well, you know, we had some good stuff during the PS5, and for the recent Xbox uh, event, they showed off a few interesting games in the mix. And I think it's a case of that people are so anxious to get something big to really look forward to. And you kind of wonder if this had been a traditional year where they would have an in-person Gamescom, where they would have an in-person PAX, if we would get stuff like this. I still think we're going to see a lot more between Gamescom and PAX Online. Um, they've already started sending out. Last week we got a whole uh, wave of the people who have covered PAX in the past, uh, we all got invites uh, to a different form of media registration this year and years past, but the implication is that there would be potential breakout rooms and stuff for media members to go where probably we could ask questions and maybe see things or see more of things. Who knows? But the fact is they're clearly preparing for uh, media access for an online event, and that you know, we you haven't seen that at a lot of things. So we'll see what they have. And I, I think, you know, everybody goes, oh, what about this and what about that? We forget. They got Doom Eternal out. They got the big expansion Wastelanders out for Fallout 76. They have continued to put new content out. And, you know, the the problem is they have the um, uh, the build event going on right now for Fallout 76. And I think the problem was when we heard that we knew about Starfield, we knew about Elder Scrolls Six. everybody starts expecting that. And they, like you said, told us it would be several years until this thing. Now, if they would have had a traditional Bethesda showcase at E3 this year, okay, maybe we would have been given a little more. But they didn't. So I think it's not unreasonable to think that some of these companies are basically saying, look, if we don't have anything that's coming out until at least next Christmas time, there's no reason to be showing it off now. We can look to see where the world is next year. If things are good, we can show it off hopefully at E3 in June, and if not, we'll reassess. And I think it's just, it's. I get the gamers' situation that they're just so anxious for news. They're so anxious to look forward to things. But I also understand the business side of it that, you don't want to be touting something that's not even close to being ready because, uh, believe me, I've worked in game development. I've seen things change radically from an announced build until uh, until the uh, the final version. You know, massive changes to games. In fact, uh, yeah. So go go figure. Now the other big news I wanted to talk today was about the. Uh, news from studios. About a week ago, we talked about how AMC and Universal have resolved their differences. So basically, they agreed to a 17-day moratorium between when a movie is released in theaters until it is released on demand. That was to include three weekends. Now, um, more details have come out that AMC has apparently offered this deal to the other studios, not just Universal, and uh, they're waiting to hear what the response is for that. The AMC understands they may not be very popular for this, but this is what they see is the future of it. 
now we learned a few other little tricks. Like, for example, uh, AMC has their own paid video on demand service, so these films will be released on those, and you can bet AMC is getting a cut of it. Uh, they have to be in the theaters for, I believe, 10 days before they can make any announcement about its release date uh, for video on demand. And then, uh, when they are released to video on demand, they still must stay in theaters. So you think, okay, um, that's interesting. A movie generally makes 80% of its uh, theatrical viewing uh, revenue in the first 17 days in the theater. And for all those who say, oh, well, the movie theaters are dying, video on demand, streaming, numbers don't back that up. The box office has still been the largest generator of revenue. Now, I'm not saying that's going to continue, but it, it has been proven that even with the rise of streaming, even with video on demand, people still prefer to see their films in a um, theater, the major events. Now, before we get to the commentary, uh, there's been another curveball thrown into the mix. This week, the courts decided that a long-standing rule that goes back to the golden age of Hollywood that prohibited studios from owning movie theaters was no longer valid, and they threw it out. Now, for those of you that uh, aren't aware, back in the day when there were not multiplexes, when a uh, theater usually had one screen and that was it, it was not uncommon for the theaters to be owned by the studios. And this meant that if you were MGM you and you owned your theater, your movies released in this theater. And, of course, in every community you would have that. If you were Universal, your theater's here. If you were, you know, uh, this company, they went over there. Now, the trick for that was that meant a lot of these independent movies had to scramble to find a viewing house. And you would hear stories about back in the day that, you know, like the Ed Wood films and that sort of thing. They had to go to drive-ins or independent theaters, uh, which limited their exposure. Well, uh, nowadays they have massive multiplexes with 8 to 12 to 16 to 20 screens. So being able to say, okay, this theater is only going to show um, universal films is kind of not valid because at any given time, a studio may only have two to four films out and you're not going to fill up your multiplex with it. And then, of course, the argument is, say you're a Paramount-owned theater, are you really going to say no to bringing in the new Star Wars film, the new Marvel film, and uh, the new Pixar film that are making huge money for Disney? and let that go to only their theaters? No, you're going to want to put as much as you can into your theaters to make as much money because you have to fill out those screens. So, Justin, your take on this whole thing. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Uh, so to go into the in order of the topic, so the, for the, the first topic on the deal between AMC and um, uh, the studios. So... Um, I think this makes sense. Uh, I think this has been sort of a long time coming, um, mainly because, um, you know, and I think you bring up some absolutely in very important points that often get missed in this topic and that, um, you know, the, the narrative often is that uh, studios or, uh, excuse me, theaters are dying and streaming services are basically taking over. Um, but like you said, uh, box office 
uh, is still the largest uh, viewing uh, medium for for films. Um, now, both things are sort of true, where the box office has been increasingly struggling against uh, a streaming service um, competition, but that doesn't mean necessarily that uh, the streaming services have completely replaced um, the box office as like the largest viewing medium. It just means that increasingly uh, every year, it seems like box offices have been struggling in comparison to many years ago before streaming services had, uh, um, you know, a larger share of, of what's going on in the industry. That being said, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I strongly think that theaters will always be around. I mean, at the at worst case scenario for theaters, they become sort of niche things. Uh, but even that I don't think is very true. Uh, it's something that's very likely just because, um, I think studios are really going to struggle to, uh, find really good ways to monetize, very large films um, in the streaming space. Um, I'm not sure if we spoke about it in one of our previous podcasts, but Disney recently announced that Mulan uh, would be releasing on their streaming platform. Um, and just like I thought, uh, they they announced that it's basically going to be a $30 premium on top of the, uh, the, the subscription you already pay every month. So... Uh, and this was like roughly what I thought would would happen for a blockbuster if they were going to try to release it on streaming services. Uh, and I think that's very experimental. I'm not sure, and I don't think that even they are very confident that uh, this is going to be hugely. Uh, you know, no one's really ever tried this before, releasing like a 300 million dollar blockbuster movie uh, and try to monetize it like strictly on streaming services. Um, you know, obviously they will be releasing it in theaters and the countries they can, but I think this is sort of just a, uh, one, a, a bit of an, an experiment to see if they can make it financially work. But two, I think, um, you know, just because, uh, of what's going on in the world, uh, I think this is like just their best case scenario. They're trying what, what they can to make it work. That being said though, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical that that model would ever replace the theater model because I mean, if you really look at the the two options, let's say a, like a large, just for example, a very large Marvel movie comes out in a few years. Um, you know, you, you have your, your option where you can go down to the theater and pay uh, probably at that time uh, between 10 and $15 uh, to view it on a very large screen with a very good sound system. Uh, or you can, you know, watch it on your home screen uh, for a $30 premium on top of the, the subscription you already pay. Uh, you know, that's really going to be a question that people are going to have to answer on their own. Uh, there's, I, I have many friends that don't like this theater experience. I happen to like the theater experience quite a bit. Uh, you know, depending on the movie, I think most, most films, I, I like the theater experience myself. Um, but you know, for me, I, I, for, for most movies, I probably would choose the option to go see it in the theaters. Um, and uh, so for that reason, I think this will always be, you know, theaters will always be around for that. So I think this is sort of a middle ground, this deal that they cut, they've come to. And, uh, it, it sort of makes sense. Um, we'll have to kind of see whether it's, it's successful for them or not. Now to the, the other topic, uh, just br very briefly on the, the studios owning their own theaters. Um, I, I am, 
a little bit skeptical that this would ever become big uh, for a lot of the reasons that you've already highlighted, Gareth. I think, you know, uh, like you said, uh, there's just too many films um, that they would be missing out on if they were exclusive to that studio only. Uh, it would be very hard to make that financially work. But the only other point I wanted to bring up about that is um, just the fact that a lot of these theaters have been operating in this space for decades and the studios have not. Um, so just the trying to just financially uh, make that work uh, and jumping into a space that they haven't been operating in for a very long time, I just don't really see it really happening. Uh, I could maybe see it in a very niche role. So I could see maybe some very small theaters opening for, you know, showing older uh, movies of that studio, uh, maybe doing like film events for that, for that studio, like premiere events and things like that. But uh, I don't really see that becoming a very large um, uh, practice in the, in the industry at large, but uh, I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Maybe I'll be wrong on this, but, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much my thoughts on, on that. And I do have a couple of things to add to it. But Michael, I'd like to get your take on all of this, please. Yeah, so, and I agree. I, a couple of things here is, as far as the, um, the streaming versus theater discussion goes, I think one thing this pandemic has taught us all is that people can't stay at home. They don't want to stay at home. Um, they want to go out. They want to go out to eat. They want to go to the movies. They want to go do something. And I think there's going to be a lot of bottled up need to get out once things kind of lift a bit and I think that's where your your movie theaters and that's where your restaurants and things are going to start seeing a bit of a resurgence. Now, I don't think anybody's going to say that that's necessarily going to happen while the pandemic is, you know, still going through the country, but I think that what we found is that you can't replicate the the theater or the or the dining out experience at home. You just can't. I mean, people will say, "Oh, I can watch this on streaming. I can watch the movie at home." And absolutely you can do that. But what we've learned is that people still miss going out and going to the, the theater. You know, the thing about the Mulan price, the $29.99 um, for it, you know, I, I understand why Disney's doing that. I, I think they were at a point where they had to do something. They're sitting on a movie that was going to come out in March. Um, and now we're, you know, looking into um, August, September, October. Realistically, the theaters in the United States probably won't open this year. If they do, they're going to be pretty sparsely populated. They're not going to get the, the draw that they would have gotten um, during the su a normal summer at all. And I don't think that's going to happen. But I, it does kind of beg the question, if you're going to watch it at home on a streaming service, do you want to pay $29.99 for it? Or do you want to just wait three months for it to come out for free? Or do you want to wait for it to come out on Blu-ray and pay 20 bucks, right? Because um, again, you're, you're not gaining anything for that cost other than the ability to watch it early. Um, whereas places like Alamo Drafthouse, you know, have season passes for $14.99, you know, or 30 bucks for two people to go. Um, you can see a movie seven days a week, you know, once everything kind of lifts. I know AMC has some, something similar. So I, I don't see that model being an effective model going forward. I think it'll be, it's a necessary evil for now. I think it is something that they have to do something, but you're not going to get the you're not going to get the millions of dollars you're going to get for people going to the theater. And that's not, not just in the U.S. That's, I think, a worldwide statement. I think with a lot of this, we tend to look at things as, oh, well, a lot of folks in the U.S. have streaming services. A lot of folks in the U.S. maybe have high-quality audio systems at their home, or maybe they have big-screen TVs. 
but the U.S. is just one very, you know, it's a large market, but it's not necessarily the largest market. We know China's a, a huge market for the movies. We know Brazil and, and some of those other ones are getting there too. And the, let's be honest, the opportunities for them to stream at home and spend that kind of money to watch a movie at home is, is less of, less likely than the amount of money they'd spend going to the theater. So again, we're, we look at this from a very U.S.-centric perspective, but I think we have to look at it from a, from a global perspective and how much money they're really losing globally um, outside of just the U.S. market. So obviously I think that's, that's a completely different topic in and of itself is, is you know, how do theaters survive currently? You know, how do we, how does we survive? AMC is obviously offering a deal with the larger um, studio companies in an effort to for them to survive. And I understand again why they're doing that. Um, with the expectation is that you know there's still going to be a moratorium on first day releases for streaming. And then yes, when after that you know 17 days or whatever is up, um, then they can get double dip essentially because they get the movies in the theaters and they can also be streaming to their um, their streaming services as well and I certainly understand why they're doing that I think right now um, most of these theaters uh, AMC, Alamo, Harkins all of these theaters are looking for ways to just ride out the pandemic because really that's what they have to do you know are we going to see theaters closed indefinitely no I don't think that's going to be the case do I think they're going to be full when they first open, though, with this still going on? Of course not. Um, so they have to come up with some creative outlets on how they can still maintain a profit and survive, um, again, while while this is going on. And if we start talking about things like 50% capacity or 20% capacity, and a lot of the movies, a lot of their revenue is based on not the movies themselves, but on the concessions, and now you're talking about you still get free refills on large popcorns. Do you give free refills on large drinks? Do you just charge separately? You know, how, do they, how does it work in this world? I, I don't think we know. So yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of things from a theater perspective to kind of that we could discuss on, on how all of this is going to change and, and what's going to happen. You know, on that final point, the point about the theaters being able to operate their own, you know, the the production companies being able to operate their own theaters. I can see where they might actually look to uh, buy out other chains. Again, maybe Paramount buys out, I don't know, AMC or, or uh, Cinemark or something else, right? And they will basically run it as a normal theater, I think it's still allowing um, their, their competitors' movies to be shown on the screens, although you might see that they would prioritize their movies coming out on the better screens. But it would become one of those uh, Cinemark, a Paramount company, or, or AMC, uh, you know, a, a Sony property. You know, you'll start seeing where they're they're going to be owned and operated by that larger conglomerate. But at the same time, I can't imagine that they would restrict only movies from their um, production companies being being screened there. Again, that might have worked back in the day when there were two screens per theater, four screens per theater. You know, there, there was there would have been a, a legitimate reason to if you have two screens and in a theater and you have two Paramount movies coming out and two Sony Pictures movies coming out and, and you know two movies from Fox coming out or whatever 20th Century Fox whatever the case may be Disney you know if you if the theaters owned those buildings owned those they could actually prioritize their movie if it's the only movie theater within 
10 miles and they're going to show Paramount only movies and you get a lot of people going to see Paramount movies because they don't want to drive further. Um, so I can understand back in the day why that was a concern. But now with these megaplex, megaplexes with the 20 screens, the 30 screens, you're not going to have a, a parent company like Paramount operating a 20 screen cinema and only showing three movies that happen to be recent movies of theirs and, and not showing any others. I think that would be a way for them to not make a lot of extra money and that would also incentivize other theaters to not play their movies. So, yeah, I don't know that, I think that's going to be something where we might see these kind of swoop in and, and pick up smaller theaters, maybe pick up smaller chains um, to kind of bring in their revenue, but again, I can't imagine that they would limit it to their production movies only. So, yeah, it's going to be, a, I think 2020 is what it is. I think we can pretty much write that off from a theater going experience for the most part. But it'll be interesting to see what 2021 holds and and the ones that do survive and the ones that ride it out, um, what, what what it looks like on the other end. I think that's going to be something we'll, we'll definitely have to wait to see. I think the other thing to remember is that uh, this is a different time in that if you try to undermine your competition by putting them on in theaters with bad projection or bad sound quality and you put yours on better equipment that's going to get out and that is going to become a social media nightmare and that's going to potentially become a litigious situation and again it comes down to why would you want to take money away by having people say oh so and so looked bad on this theater I'm going over to the one that's owned by the studio so I can get the best one now the other thing is I think it depends on the type of movie uh, big event films like Star Wars, the Marvel films, so, you know, these are always going to be better in a big group experience. Horror films, people watch a lot of cheap independent horror films, direct video at home, but we know that when there's an event film like the Halloween reboot, it is best enjoyed in a communal experience. And I was looking at uh, one of the films, it just came out, it's been on a on demand for a while, but it just came out on Stars, and that is Vin Diesel's Bloodshot. And, you know, this was supposed to kick off a franchise, and this was a movie that had the worst luck. It opened, and like less than a week later, they shut down theaters all over the world. So, you know, it quickly came to on demand. Um, does play in theaters where it was allowed, and now it's into the uh, streaming platform so this is one of those that I looked at it and I said okay you know it's entertaining but if I had paid ten dollars to see this probably would have been a bit upset uh, you know 4k television at home that was fine but at the same time I also realized various scenes were going to look and sound so much better at home in the theater I mean in, in the theater than at home no matter how good your equipment is and then I started flipping through uh, one of the potential problems. Remember that the theater chains have to negotiate directly with the studios for the rental fees on the movies. You know, we get so much the box office this week, so much the second, and that's where the stipulation hangs up because on some of these big films, the studio may want 80, 90% of the box office for the first three weeks. And the studio, the cinemas will come back and say, no, no, we can't do that. It's got to be 80, 70, 60, and then after that, a 50-50 split or something like that. And that's 
a big issue because it needs to stay in the theaters for a longer amount of time in order for the theaters to make their profits on that because the old argument is they make barely enough to cover overhead with what they sell on tickets. It's the popcorn and everything. So their money comes when a film has been out for a little while that it continues to stay in the theater and they get a bigger cut of it. Well, what happens if all of a sudden Studio A, which owns this theater, decides, eh, uh, I don't have to, well, I don't have to do anything since I own it and I keep all the money anyway, so uh, I'm just going to put it out here and everyone else can pay 90%, and if you don't like it, too bad. Everybody can go to see. That's where you kind of run into some potential issues. But really quick, before we move on to the final topic, I was looking at the projected movie releases. And so just to kind of give you folks an idea. So we've got the new Mutants. They still think it's going to come out August 28th. I don't see that happening. Not there. I just don't see theaters widespread enough for that to happen. We're not, you know, is it going to go streaming eventually? Yeah, who knows? Uh, personal history of David Copperfield. This is being announced uh, likely streaming. The big one that everyone looks at is Bill and Ted Face the Music. They've announced that it's going to go into the theaters but it is also going on to video on demand. And I think this is an example of one that high profile, but not the massive budget that would justify it, uh, the need for theatrical. So as you go down the list, here's where you start to run into problems. We keep coming around Tenet. Tenet is just too big of a film to successfully monetize on demand. Otherwise, they would have done it by now. But a film like Liam Neeson's Honest Thief, that is one that you could put out on demand and be profitable because there's a big difference between only needing to make $100 million to be profitable versus, hey, we need three, four, five hundred million. And, you know, there are films scheduled that you look at it. Uh, the Kingsman is there. That's another one. Now, truthfully, I think The Kingsman is one that would have to go to the theaters to be highly profitable. But at the same time, that's one that's right there in the middle where you could say, well, maybe. Uh, but as you go down the line, like Wonder Woman, that's not going to work. Candyman possibly could work on demand. Black Widow, don't see it. Uh, no Time to Die, no. These are, these are going to have to be theatrical events, and that's why they're being pushed back. Free Guys, stuff like that. Escape Room 2, they could put on demand. So you can kind of see how it works out. If it's a major event film, uh, you know, Ghostbusters, Marvel's Eternals, Fast and Furious 9, um, not going to happen. Maybe something like Quiet Place Part 2 that has a smaller overhead, but, you know, we will see. Now, for the final topic, Michael and I are going to discuss uh, the Orville. Justin uh, hasn't seen it, so won't really be his um, ideal forte. But as I was saying, I was talking to a group, uh, on Reddit, very nice Orville group, and we talked about some things they'd like to see for season three. So I thought I'd just list those off, uh, throw in one of my own, and uh, get Michael's reaction. So starting off, they'd like to see Alara Katane return. The actress had uh, left the show a couple episodes into season two, but did um, return uh for the finale in an alternate timeline, season two finale. So they'd like to see her back. Um, a lot of people would like to see if the Kalon have a resistance uh, forming, or is Isaac the only one that basically stood up 
and rebelled? And also, would there be fallout for Isaac uh, from his decision to essentially initially help his people hijack the Oracle and lead an assault on Earth uh, before swinging around and returning to help his crewmates? Um, people have said less Bachlan and more Krill. They would like to know more about Krill's enemy that appeared in Season 2. And one great suggestion was to Leia, who was a love interest for Seth MacFarlane's Ed Mercer, who turned out to be a uh, Krill in disguise, whom he had uh, dealings with in Season 1. They thought it would be nice to see her come back and possibly be a liaison between uh, her people and the humans. Uh, the definitely have a lot of issues to sort out but that would be interesting more Star Trek guests more um, dynamic between Gordon, John and Moriapet, the belief was that since John has gone into engineering I heard um, Gordon needs to take his command exam and more exploration, now the curveball that I wanted to throw in, I just thought I know it's going to be uh, silly but I thought wouldn't it be funny if Ed and Kelly ended up with a kid and remained unmarried so now you had that will they won't they love hate although they've kind of gotten away from the hate side a little more uh, dynamic with them but now add in parenthood so um, very interesting and of course people want to see more exploration and a little more science so Michael what do you think what do you want to see and what do you think of their suggestions yeah no, I, I think there are a lot of really good suggestions and I agree with the Alorca Tane part myself uh, I, I think they did okay without her as best as they could but she did kind of bring a little bit more unique flair to the show uh, so I certainly think that that character was was certainly missing um, you know you know a, a bit from the and I we all know the reasons why for that but I just I kind of miss miss that character and the, the arcs that they were going with that character uh, I think the Ed and Kelly thing I'm glad they they, when they did the um, the zoo episode where they kind of showed that they didn't really want to get back or couldn't really get back together and that sort of thing. I think, I still think that there's a chance that they're going to get together again, I, but I think it would have been way too early to do that. Because again, we've seen this happen before with other shows where they kind of start off with the two characters clashing because of a former relationship or whatever. And then they end up getting together way too early, either because they didn't expect the show to last more than a season or two, or for some other reason. And then they struggle to kind of fill that gap. So I was happy that they didn't that they didn't go there again. I'm not saying they won't towards the end of the run, but I, I'm glad they didn't go there. Um, and I and I certainly think that there needs to be some repercussions to Isaac. And and, and I would be curious about the Isaac resistance part or the the resistance. Um, the Kalon resistance, I think that would actually be a really interesting way to, for that to to, to go from that. I, I, because, again, Isaac, you know, are we meant to believe that just because his relationship with the crew, is he the only one that truly would feel that way? I think a, a resistance, a faction of the Kalons would be a really kind of interesting uh, spin on that whole scenario. I certainly think there needs to be some, some sort of retro, some sort of way to I, I just don't think you can take Isaac for what he did in, and I don't want to spoil it in, in season two and then yes the redemption aspect of it I get that but I, I think it's it's a bit something that they I don't think they can overlook entirely so I think they have a lot of opportunities 
I think the real question on everybody's mind is, will, will there be another season after season three, which would, I think, is going to determine a bit what we're going to see in season three. Because um, if, if it shows, traditionally when shows have an ending point, i.e. they have a season they want, they know it's going to be the end, not because of ratings or because they've done poorly, but because they feel it's they've told their story, they tend to take those in a, in a, in a more of a, they, instead of leaving it open for further seasons or, or leaving it open as, you know, for cliffhangers, they tend to drive the season towards a finale. You know, they'll, they try to, to come up with um, ways to end those character progressions in a meaningful way um, so that it doesn't leave out a lot of questions. You know, it doesn't leave a lot of people hoping for more. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see if, 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 how those rumors come about. Because I don't think anybody will say that the Orville is not a popular show. Um, I, I think it's it definitely has its a, a wide enough audience, and it certainly has done well enough that it can continue. Um, and if the rumors are true that they don't want it to continue, then I think we will see. Uh, we might see more exploration, but I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of um, the characters themselves finishing their progression and finishing their their story arcs. And I think it might the third season might better or worse for some folks feature more of the individuals and how the story arcs come to a conclusion so it, it'll be interesting to see again if they, it's something that they that they can i certainly think they could and they will expand it into future seasons i think we will see a lot more being fleshed out from the krill because again the krill kind of took a little bit of backseat in season two where the kalons kind of became a more pressing adversary kind of brought that truce that treaty together uh, I think that would be a lot ever interesting to see, again, having a common enemy is easier to bring two groups together and so maybe see that dissolve. But again, are we going to see some sort of resolution there because the seasons are coming to an end, or are we going to see them start mixing things up so that they can go further out? So, yeah, I think it's, it's really going to depend on if season three is truly the last one and where we where we want those characters to be at the end of that season. Yeah, it's, it's got a lot of interesting stuff. I find it interesting because we have that one rumor that, okay, this is it. They have no plans to go by season past season three. But it didn't come from anybody studio-related. You haven't heard a single member of the cast touch it, and you haven't heard anyone from Hulu touch it. So, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that on one hand you would think, if it's out and it's going to happen, you would think at some point the studio would have come out and said, okay, hey, yeah, uh, here you go. Or they would have come out and said, no, this is a load of garbage. And it just, I, I think it's, they're kind of taking that mentality of at this point, it's just not even worth commenting on because they're trying to essentially say, we don't want to legitimize it by addressing it. So be curious, though, to see where things go. And I do think there's a lot of opportunity for them to really expand on this and discuss so many of the storylines and you know the fact is unlike star trek these are not 21 22 26 episode seasons so um you know there there are still so many uh storylines that they could um look at and it'll be so interesting uh to see what they do and what they come up with so who knows? Now, Justin, before we sign off today, you've been very patient. Do you have anything else that you wanted to close with today? 
No, I think uh, I think we covered just about everything. All right, perfect. Well, folks, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, stay well, stay safe, and we will be back next week. We'll have a lot of stuff to discuss. Until then, take care. Bye now.